I was just reminded as we were singing that hymn that at the midpoint of my sixth grade year, uh, my mom, though she couldn't afford it, enrolled me in Christian school. It was a bit of a rehab assignment for me and hoping for the best. And I remember in that Bible class I first encountered, we had to memorize scripture. Uh, we had a weekly catechism, questions and answers, and we had a weekly hymn to memorize and were tested on. And the first one, Still remember, the first one I memorized there in the sixth grade was Great is Thy Faithfulness. I'm glad that the kids are in the room today. No kids worship today. Those are the sort of songs that you need to know. Your parents know them, and your grandparents sang them, your great-grandparents sang them. It's not just because they're familiar and make us feel good, but so much wisdom, so much truth there. And if at a young age, everybody in this room it's older than you can affirm. If at a young age you can begin to learn that God is faithful, that God is good, his reward is great, that he is worth it, then you've learned a lot. Uh, so I'm glad you're here to hear that this morning. I've got a question for you. It's not really hypothetical or theoretical. It's not rhetorical, but I do want you to think about it. What sort of people, what sort of person does God save? Well, what sort of people, what sort of person is transformed by the gospel? I mean, there are a lot of ways I could rephrase this. Who's reachable? Who's savable? I mean, what sort of people respond? I think sometimes, if we're not careful, we have a subconscious anti-gospel bias regarding certain people. Now, we may not flesh this out. We may not speak it aloud. But in our minds, we're fairly convinced that that person is just never going to get it. That person is never going to submit to it. That person is never going to believe it. Uh, that person is never going to turn to it. That person is out of, out of reach. And I want you to see from the text we looked at last week and where we are today, the vast array of the sort of people that the gospel reaches. Rich and poor, young and old, male and female, pagan, religious, influential, insignificant, names you know, names you don't, across the span, across the span of people and types and backgrounds, ethnicities, upbringings, religious persuasions, the gospel penetrates. And when we saw last week in Acts 16, 14, a woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, she didn't know really the God that she worshiped, she was she was embracing the Judaism she saw around her and this idea of a single God, a monotheistic God. But she didn't know Jesus that God had sent. But the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to the gospel, that which was said by Paul. Today you'll see a slave girl who was demon-possessed. A jailer, a Roman official. And Romans 10, 13 reminds us of this. Whether it's slave or free, rich or poor, young or old, whatever description you give... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's our aim. I mean, that's our prayer. And, and I tell you that today for several reasons. I say it for the benefit of some of you sitting in the room today. For whatever reason you're here, if you came because you were excited and eager to be here, or because you were persuaded or talked into it, or because you made some sort of deal to get something else and you're here, but you don't really want to be, or if you're just listening, you're not outside the reach of the grace of God. This grace of God that we have sung about today, that we have 
renewed our faith in today. That grace is available to you. And I also say that to you for the sake of the people that you love and care about and work with and live around and talk to every day. Who's outside of the reach of God? Who's outside of the saving power of the gospel? And his monumental work, because of its content, not because of its size, J.I. Packer wrote, in evangelism of the sovereignty of God, this, he said there's only one method and means of evangelism, just one, the gospel of Jesus, explained and applied, two critical words, explained and applied. Can you explain the gospel? Can you apply it to their situation? He said there's only one agent of evangelism, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Christ himself who, through his Holy Spirit, enables his servants to explain the gospel truly. And apply it powerfully and effectively, just as it is Christ himself who through his Holy Spirit opens men's minds and hearts to receive the gospel, and so draws them savingly to himself. One means or method, one agent. If you and I will know the gospel well enough to explain it, if we'll care about people enough and hear their stories well enough and be involved in their lives closely enough to apply it to their lives, we can trust in the agent of the gospel Peter wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. This is about you and about your salvation if you're saved, and it's also a statement about how you got there. So when we think about who God saves and how God saves, listen to what Peter wrote. He says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Make a connection between those statements. You were saved, you were born again, Through an imperishable seed. What's the imperishable seed? The Word of God. It was the Word of God implanted in you that grew up to salvation. He says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. How is anybody saved? Whether it's Lydia, or the slave girl, or the Philippian jailer, or the everyone in Romans 10, 13. The same means, if you and I will take that word of God, that is the seed. Sometimes we say, well, you know, I planted a seed. You know, I took him a pie. You know, I planted a seed. You know, I've got this bumper sticker on my car that says God loves you. You know, I was wearing this t-shirt with Christian radio on it. You know, I planted a seed. The planting of a seed biblically is not some nuanced flavoring or seasoning It's not some personality or promotion. It's the gospel itself. It's the word of God. You plant that. You give them the word of God, and that seed is there. And then it grows into salvation, and that's the good news that was preached to you, and that's why we're born again. Who can God save? Whomever he chooses, who hears the gospel and responds to it. Let's pray this morning. Father, I pray that your word would be implanted in us some For some, that it would grow up into salvation. It would come into fruition, and they would put their faith and trust in you, believe in you completely, surrender their lives to you, and be saved. I pray it would take root, and it would not be snatched away. I pray the cares of this world would not take it away. I pray the enemy would not remove it. But, Father, I pray that it would grow. Father, for others of us, I pray that our faith would grow today. Our sense of endurance, perseverance, readiness would grow today, that we'd be encouraged today. I pray also that we'd be motivated, that we'd be reminded of the power of the gospel and so be motivated to talk about it, to share it. Father, I pray that increasingly you would remove from us fear, for that is not the spirit that you give us. 
but the power and love of a sound mind, knowing that the Word of God brings salvation. And so, Lord, bless what we do today. Bless our interaction with your Word and make us doers of it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's start in Acts chapter 16. If you've got a Bible, open it up with me. You can track along. Acts chapter 16. We're continuing in this second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And one thing I want you to see as we go through these texts is I want you to see the challenges that they faced and the challenges they met and the worth of the gospel. I mean, it's just one of those big overarching themes. See how much Jesus is worth it and remind yourself or preach to yourself, encourage yourself. Jesus is worth it. If you face challenges or difficulties, some of you are getting ready to head off to school this week. You're going to be heading off to college. You're going to be enjoying things like independence and freedom and all those sort of things, but you're going to be faced with challenges of a different sort than you've had before. And as much exposure as you've had to the world, you're going to find that you live in somewhat of a bubble, and all of a sudden that bubble gets burst, and you see not everyone thinks like you do, believes like you do, and there will be some that will do everything they can to undo you. But Jesus is worth it. He's faithful. And I hope a text like this will encourage you, and I hope will add to that foundation of faith. Listen to what he says in verse 16. This is Paul talking about himself, talking about Silas, his missionary partner. He says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain, gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Let me give you a little background on what's happening here. Literally in the text, the passage says this woman was a pythoness. Python was that mythical Greek god that guarded the temple of Apollos, that huge snake that Apollos eventually killed himself. The idea of this girl having a spirit of divination is that she probably was part of an oracle, believing that the future could be told, believing that information could be given, probably around Delphi or Pitho, Pytho, on that shrine. This oracle would have been consulted by statesmen, ambassadors, citizens who had the means to pay for that information. Obviously, according to the Scripture, she's controlled by some sort of significant evil force behind all of this. She was so valuable that her services had been purchased, purchased by what we might call a syndicate. She said, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. It sounds right at first hearing, doesn't it? I mean, it's like Paul's getting an assist here. Wherever he goes, he's getting an introduction. Hey, these men are servants of the Most High God. But the word salvation there, without explanation, without further elaboration, would have been insufficient to convey the meaning of the gospel to people. Even today, when we say Jesus saves, does everybody know what, what we mean? Saves from what? What is it that Jesus brings us salvation from? What is salvation? Is this financial? Is this physical? Is this my purpose, my worth? What is, what is he saving me from? Without further explanation, that could have been health or healing to the pagan, just like it would be today. And the phrase, most high God, that wouldn't indicate to them necessarily, like it would to us, that they represent Jehovah God. They represent Jesus. No, it could have been they represent the God of the gods 
so many gods, but this is the top one, so listen, listen to them. Well, Paul had no desire to be advertised or advocated by an evil spirit. And Paul's pattern of response is just like someone else in the New Testament whenever this happened to him. Do you remember? See, this happened in Jesus' ministry sometimes, too, and he would be preaching and teaching, and there would be someone with an evil spirit, or an evil spirit would speak out and would speak of the divinity. And what did Jesus say? Every time, silence them. Every single time. John Pollock, in his book, The Apostle, says, anyone who would acknowledge Jesus at the word of an evil spirit would be a pseudo-disciple at best and still under demonic influence. And the last state of that man would be worse than the first. So Paul rejected that message altogether. And so this tragic girl, possessed by an evil spirit, exploited by these evil men who used her for profit and for gain. She had no self-determination. She was a slave girl, but a profitable one. And even in her words, which seem on the surface to be somewhat accurate, are discrediting the gospel. They're discrediting the gospel. They're not bringing the full meaning of the gospel. There's no message of repentance. There's no message of cross and empty tomb. There's no message of the singleness of God, the uniqueness of God. The Bible says that she greatly annoyed the Apostle Paul. Another word for that would be grieved. You know, if we think she's just ticking him off and Paul was short-fused, that's probably not what it is. Probably grieved him in his heart. Her condition, her effect on other people, and he's, he's grieved by this to the point of action. But ultimately, she was delivered by Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't say so explicitly in the text. I get that. But early church history and writing suggests that she did become part of that early church, and accompanying that deliverance by Christ would be faith in Christ. And of course, that would fit the pattern of Jesus when he did miraculous deliverance from evil spirits during his earthly ministry, to not leave someone susceptible to the same thing again, but worse, but to deliver them completely. Because to take away the evil spirits doesn't change her life for eternity. It changes her life for now. And so presumably, she also was delivered and delivered completely. So we see, first of all, the power of the gospel over evil, not just in the ministry of Jesus, but in the ministry of Paul and the birth of the church. Look at the response of the crowd, verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. There's a bit of a play on words there as Luke is writing Acts and describing it. At the very hour that she was delivered, at the same hour as she was freed from a demon, those demonic men or those evil men were freed from their source of income. And they got it. They got what happened in that very moment. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Consider the swift and malicious reaction of these greedy slave owners. When they realized their source of income was gone, that her ability to bring them profit was over, and now she's just a slave girl. What will we use her for now? To clean our houses? No. They're angry. They're, they're fuming. And they instigate a public riot. 
And here's what's happening sort of politically. If you're wondering, how did this thing escalate so much? Well, keep in mind this. This is a Roman city under the responsibility or government of Roman magistrates. And their responsibility above all is to keep the order. And so now they sort of stirred up this thing, this event happening. And the more they shouted, the more they yelled, and the more they got people in there with them, the more it escalated and the more the magistrates knew they had to do something. So that's their response, this public order. They said, these men are causing a disturbance in our city. And whether or not it was Paul and Silas causing the disturbance of these men is certainly debatable. But a disturbance was for sure. And then they threw this out there, this bit of, this bit of racism. They are Jews in the first place. Well, see, that's bad. Romans already perceived the Jews to be troublemakers. The Romans had already suppressed the Jews They'd cast them out of Rome already, and now this little Roman city, well, now we've got a Jewish problem. And then they said this, they teach customs which it's not lawful for us to accept or practice being Romans. They go against our religion. They go against our practices. They're, they're defying our gods. Well, that's worse. Now, these Roman magistrates were supposed to suppress anything that went against the Roman order to protect Romanness wherever it is. So the case is clear, the more this gets stirred up, the more they've got to do something. Again, here's what happens next. They never ask for a defense. As far as we know, Paul or Silas didn't get to utter a word in their own defense. Instead, the reaction was swift. They stripped them down and they beat them brutally. Again, in his great novel, his historical novel on, or biography of the apostle's life, John Pollock writes this, and I want to share it with you. No formal sentence was uttered. Merely a quick order to the lictors. Lictors. You know, that's where we get the phrase, they got their licks in. Not L-I-C-K, L-I-C-T. Merely a quick order to the lictors. The slave owners looked on with grim satisfaction. The crowd quieted a little as the lictors drew their rods. They stepped down, one to each missionary, and stripped him of all his clothes. When Paul's scarred, knotted back was exposed to the sun, nobody had further doubts. Can you imagine? Ah, see, an instigator troublemaker. He's getting what he deserves. He's been here before. They were thrown down at the flogging post. It's doubtful whether in the hurry they were tied. Plenty of strong arms could grip either if he struggled. The lictors began. As the blood ran from the cuts, the crowd roared. When a savage blow caught a vertebrae and even a tough apostle could not suppress a cry, the people loved it. Paul and Silas fought the pain with prayer. Urged on by the crowd, the lictors swung their rods with a will until both black backs were bloody. You see, in this moment, for the sake of the gospel, Paul and Silas, where God wanted them to be, doing what God wanted them to do, doing it the way God wanted them to do it, nonetheless face this. This angry mob concealed their real motives. It had nothing to do with religion. It had nothing to do with Romanness. It had everything to do with, with money, with income. They accused these missionaries falsely. What they were doing was not true. It was the crowd that stirred up the crowd. It was the slave owners that incited a riot, not Paul and Silas. They manipulated the bigotry of the crowd, knowing the accusation of Jewishness would certainly stir some people up. They're not like us. They're not one of us. This is foreign to us. And then they instigated this brutal beating. I don't want to take an aside from just the narrative of the passage and what's happening here. To answer something that may be on your mind, it was certainly on mine as I studied through this text. Something I wanted to sort of get my head around, both for the Apostle Paul's sake, but also for yours and for mine, and that's this. How do we better understand suffering that's righteous? 
I mean, again, I said they were doing what God wanted them to do. They were doing it the way God wanted them to do it in the place that God had sent them. And so a natural reaction for us, I think, would be resentment, frustration, anger, confusion, bitterness. Some would even quit. God, why would you allow something like this? This was not punishment for their sins. This was not a corrective act of God to get them on the right track again. So why? What's happening here? And without going into a, a long treatise on the doctrine of suffering in Scripture, there are a few thoughts I want to bring to bear that are from Paul's ministry, but also Paul's ministry to us and Scripture's ministry to us. And I kept, can't help but coming back to this thought again and again. Far too many of us, I think, see any sort of suffering, difficulty, pain, particularly for the sake of Jesus, as unusual or unexpected or unfair. But that's not the picture in Scripture. In fact, in Acts chapter 14, when Paul was already laying out the mission ahead of them, the challenge of taking the gospel to places where it's never been, to breaking through the kingdom of darkness, he made it clear in Acts chapter 14, verse 21, when they had preached the gospel, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples. How did they strengthen them? Encouraging them to continue the faith. How did they encourage them? Saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And I guess for me, it begs the question, will I endure tribulation for the sake of the kingdom? Is it, is it worth it to do this? Is it worth it to pay some cost? Not that I'm earning it. I don't, want to, I don't want to imply that or insinuate that. That maybe Jesus will accept me and my love for him and my gift for him if it costs me a great deal. No, but is he worth it? Would I persevere? And are they worth it? Because if he's not and they're not, then the hardest places will never be reached. The most difficult conversations will never be had. A breakthrough is never going to happen unless he's worth it. We also need to see biblically that suffering is always a picture of evil. The evilness of sin in the world. Because we so minimize the effects of sin. I, in my mind, I've got something on a back burner. I've just been working on this, whether or not it'll ever you know, rise and be bakeable and edible or not. I don't know, but I'm working on this thing on sin and just the idea that we have so minimized it into just personal, emotional, inconsequential. But this reminds us again that evil exists, it's real in this world, and there's a great cost to salvation. In suffering, Paul's giving witness to the gospel. Why is the gospel necessary? Because sin is so real, pain is so great, consequences are so significant. Look at this, look at the cost of evil. This is all evil, and evil causes suffering. We're reminded that we live in a tragically broken world. We live in that same broken world, and if anything, it's more broken now. And it's under bondage to corruption, and only Jesus can and will ultimately redeem it. It will be broken until it's redeemed by Jesus. Not only that, Paul was able to empathize and comfort other people who would suffer. Paul would not be the last. He was not the first, for sure, but he certainly would not be the last. In fact, we know worldwide that there's more persecution happening today than at any time in the history of the church right now worldwide, but we don't read about that stuff. We read about political issues and economic issues. We read about foreign conflicts and climate change, but we don't pay much attention to the suffering of our brothers and sisters across the globe, but it's real. Here's what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, 6. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. You see that message? That's a message that Christians can share with one another globally. 
We suffer the same suffering, but Jesus is worth it. And I think ultimately, as we look at Paul's sufferings throughout his missionary journeys, which are great, we'll read about these a little bit more a little bit later on. His sufferings are great, and he lists them to the Corinthians in his second letter to them. He just lays them all out, all the many sufferings. Perhaps the most powerful apologetic public display and defense of the faith is when somebody suffers righteously. Paul didn't suffer because he was a criminal or an instigator. He wasn't trying to stir up difficulty. He was trying to penetrate darkness with the gospel and to suffer when righteous for righteous causes is a powerful apologetic for the faith to show the worth of Christ. Well, look what happens next. Again, I reference Pollock because he does such a great job of narrating it. The lictors half pushed, half carried the apostles up from the forum across the Via Ignatia to the prison built on and in the hillside below the Acropolis, not far from the theater. The jailer, another veteran, was given strict instructions to guard them, to guard them closely. He assumed they were dangerous criminals who would probably be sent off to the provincial capital and end up as galley slaves. He had them manhandled, still naked, across the main prison chamber where fettered thieves and small-time brigands awaited sentence, and down through a low opening into a windowless cave. Here was a contraption used both for security and torture. Rough bars of wood were so placed that a criminal's legs could be stretched wide, held tight, and his wrists and even his neck gripped in various positions depending on how much pain the jailer wished to inflict. Because this was merely a security matter, he had Paul and Silas thrown to the ground and only their feet clamped in the bars, leaving the rest of their bodies free, and then their clothes were thrown in after them. The reason I share with you his writings about it is because I don't want us to just fly over that passage of Scripture. You know, there's so much suffering that we see in Acts and in the epistles that I think we just read him. He was beaten, he was in prison, we just fly right through. But we wouldn't fly right through if the story was about us or our spouse or our son or our daughter. We'd feel it. And I want us to feel it. So they're thrown in this prison, they're closed after them. Look what happens next, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Did you catch that? They're praying, and they're singing hymns to God. They're not doing it privately, and everybody hears. What sort of effect do you think that had on the other prisoners? Their prayers led them to praise, and they weren't afraid to express that publicly. They're singing to God. These are not people who are going through an incredibly difficult time feeling a lot of pain and saying, hey, anybody know a song? They're not trying to get their minds off it. They're not trying to just think about something different. They're singing and praising. This is, this is deeply theological. This is spiritually therapeutic. This isn't just psychological. You know, we know that Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians from a jail in Philippi. This we know. It's, it's clear. What if Paul is remembering, thinking about, or saying some of those words that we see written to the Philippians? Philippians chapter 2. Verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can you imagine how theologically profound, how spiritually strengthening and encouraging that would be to be shackled in there, bloody and beaten in excruciating pain, and still know that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, and one day, Every knee is going to bow. That in spite of the pain, and in spite of the difficulty and the suffering, we will 
prevail. Jesus will prevail. And not only for my sake, but for the sake of all of these people around me. He sang it so they could hear. Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. He has one responsibility. Assuming he has failed that and failed it utterly, the prison is blown open now. He does what he thinks is either the honorable thing or self-preserving, maybe for the sake of his family. Maybe if I take my own life, there'll be no further consequences. But he draws the sword, and look what happens next. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself. And how amazing is this? We are all here. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, and he rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. It's an amazing story, and I want you to feel it. I want you to think about it. I want you to imagine it. I want you to see it in your mind's eye. This jailer has just witnessed amazing faith. Beaten, perhaps to the point of death, beaten more brutally than any of us will ever experience. And yet, what are they doing? They're praying, and they're praising, and they're doing it loudly. Loud enough for everybody to hear. What sort of faith is this that you would persevere, that you would believe in your God, and you would call on your God even now? And then he experienced this divine intervention. I don't know what they were praying for, as the scripture doesn't say, but as they prayed, here was God's response an earthquake. Much to the jailer's surprise, the earthquake was very localized. You know, perhaps he expected to open that door and see destruction, chaos everywhere. But he realizes the earthquake was pinpoint and specific, it only affected the jail. Here's a question for you. Who was the earthquake for? I mean, certainly on one hand, it was for Paul and for Silas, for in this God set them free. But who was the earthquake for? God sent that earthquake for that jailer just as well. For the other prisoners just as well. That they could see the hand of God. They could see the response of faith. And they would have an opportunity to respond. Earthquakes don't save anybody. You might be thinking, well, man, you know, if God would just send an earthquake to my neighbor... Maybe it might change his disposition. If God would cause an earthquake of some sort, figurative or otherwise, to affect my son's life or my husband's life, then it might change them a little bit. But it's the gospel that changes. See, this Philippian jailer then benefited from some remarkable compassion. Brother, don't kill yourself. Don't do it. We're here. And that's an act of compassion. They could have fled, and he would have been dead. They could have kept silent, and he would have killed himself, but he didn't. And then he humbles himself. He falls down before Paul and Silas. That's abject humility, and it's not because of Paul and Silas. He's recognizing them as instruments in the hands of a power he's never seen. Look what happens next, verse 30. And then he brought them out, and he said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And that's a short question, but it is so loaded with meaning. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I wish I could know everything that was going, in, going through his mind when he said that. 
I, I wish I could know all of his understanding of what he was asking for when it comes to salvation. Perhaps he's asking for encouragement in great fear in the face of this sort of power, which I've never seen before, and all of these false gods, these little g-gods that we worship. All of this demonic power that exists behind these temples and, and their spokespersons. I've never seen anything like this. Save me from that. Save me from a God who can bring earthquake and judgment. Perhaps it saved me so that I can have what you have, a faith that would, that would cause me to persevere in the face of great pain and suffering, that it's worth that much to me, a faith that valuable to me. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And knowing that earthquakes don't save people and mercy and compassion doesn't save people, he gives the gospel. Now, we shouldn't presume this is everything that Paul said. This is a summary statement of everything that took place, but probably not every word that was spoken in that moment. But the least he said this, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Now sometimes our brothers and sisters in Christ who see baptism a little different than you and I do will take a passage like this and, and use it to affirm baptizing their infants, for instance. This Philippian jailer was told by Paul if you believe, you'll be saved and your household will be saved also. But that's not exactly how the text is rendered. If you will believe, and if your household will believe, they'll be saved. Because later we see right after this text, he took them in the same hour of the night. Oh, no, I'm sorry, verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So the gospel was given not just to the man whose salvation saved his family. The salvation of the man was sort of like a domino falling. It was an entry point for the salvation of his home, his household, and as Paul went back to the house, he shared the gospel with him and every person in the household. So presumably not infants who were not able to hear or understand or process the meaning of the gospel, but those who could. And he took them, the members of his household, those he spoke in the gospel to, verse 33, the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. And he brought them up into his house, and he set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. When he asked the question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? If you and I ever get that opportunity to answer that question for someone, what's the only answer? I mean, this is it. You've got to put your faith fully in Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone. And remember the components of the gospel. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the sinless Son of God who came into this world to save sinners. How did he do that? He lived perfectly, obeyed the Father completely, died sinlessly and sacrificially, rose physically, bodily, appeared personally, and is coming back again. Believe in Jesus. He didn't point him to a church, didn't point him to a religion. He didn't point to a list of behaviors to follow. He pointed him to Jesus. This is how you're saved. Later on, he'll grow. He'll understand the nuances, the expectations, the requirements. It starts with Jesus. You must be born again. Look at some of the amazing results of what happened here. Verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, Let those men go. 
That's, I, to me, that's just ironic. I mean, I kind of chuckled when I saw it. Let those men, okay, your whole prison is in rubble, okay? Um, let them go. Right, that's on you. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. And this is interesting, and it sounds a bit political, but I'm going to show you in just a moment how I think it really is much more spiritual. Paul, realizing what had happened to him, was incredibly unjust. Realizing that as a Roman citizen, his rights were violated to the nth degree. Realizing he should have been able to make a defense, there should have been an actual hearing, and anyone who violated his rights as a Roman citizen would be subject to great punishment themselves, at the least of which would be the loss of their position as magistrates. So Paul said to them, They've beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and who have thrown us into prison, and do they, not, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Is this Paul's pride talking? You know, you put me in here like this, you're not walking me out in secret. You threw me in here bloody and naked in front of everybody, and now you're going to dismiss me privately? No, 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 no. It's not about Paul. It's about the vindication of the gospel. It's about the vindication of the gospel. No, the gospel is going to be on display here. What God has done here is going to be known. What just happened here is not going to be dismissed with. It's not going to be pushed aside so that no one finds out about it. The gospel is going to be vindicated here. Verse 39, this is the great understatement of Acts 16. So they came and apologized to them. Again, I know this is not a funny story at all. It's not meant to be funny intentionally or unintentionally, but I would like to hear that apology. Would you not? Look, I'm sorry you're not ever going to be able to walk the same again. I'm sorry it's going to take you months to heal. I'm sorry you almost died. Are we good? We good? I don't know what kind of apology suffices here. But they took them out, and they now asked them to leave the city. Will you please go? So they went out of the prison, and they visited Lydia. And then perhaps just as incredible in this story, as incredible as a demon being cast out, incredible as an earthquake shaking a prison loose, is this statement to me. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Did you catch that? Who encouraged who? The brothers were at home. The brothers were safe. The brothers didn't have wounds. They had not spent the night in prison. They were not recovering from great pain and agony. But the ones who were beaten and abused, those encouraged the others. What does that tell you about real faith? They encouraged them. Hey, keep up the faith. This light and momentary trouble that we see Paul writing about later cannot compare to the glory that's going to be revealed to us in Christ Jesus. Do you realize in that moment, as Paul encouraged them, he elevated the worth of Jesus in the gospel? He didn't minimize it. I mean, at the first view, we might say, man, if that's what you're going to get for following Jesus, I don't want any of it. But I'll tell you, that's not, that's not what they saw. No, they were encouraged. If Jesus is that worth it, if he's that valuable, then that's what I want. I want something worth dying for. I want something that means so much to me that I would lose everything for it because I don't have that. I mean, I got some things I like to live for. I got some things I like to do. I got some things I'm willing to pay some money for. I got some things I'm willing to sacrifice for a bit. I want something worth dying for. If I lost everything for this, it would be worth it for me. And they were encouraged. Well, here are some results just real quickly as we wrap up. First great result is this. An unlikely church is birthed. An unlikely church. 
In his commentary on Acts, Kent Hughes says this, Some church, Lydia the merchant princess, the ex-Pythoness, the Philippian jailer, and probably a few ex-inmates make up the first European church. What a great church. Here we are. An unlikely church's birth. But it shows the scope of the saving power of God. Who, who's outside of that? Who can God not save? Look what he did. An unlikely church's birth here. Second thing is a vulnerable church is now protected. It's protected. What Paul did in that moment, the public recognition that what they had done was wrong, what they had done was unjust, and now publicly everyone's going to know it, would afford the church a certain measure of protection now because those accusations would have flown against the church next. If they could do that to Paul and get away with it, then they could do it to every believer in that church, particularly those who had a Jewish background, not a Roman one. And so Paul, looking out for them, not for himself, he was never parading about himself. He was always parading about Jesus. And this act affords some security, some protection. Later on, that church is going to face significant persecution, but not now, not for the moment. Because now those magistrates would have, as it were, their hands tied. They can't possibly redo what they just did. So the church is granted a bit of respite, security. And then as I read in that very last verse, a needy church is encouraged and strengthened. They're encouraged and strengthened. Get ready. This is coming. It's normal. It's expected. You'll display the gospel through it. You'll comfort one another in it. You'll display the worth of Christ. You'll, you'll display the power of sin. And you'll share with them the good news that Jesus who suffered for us, for our sake, for our sin, suffered and died, is raised. And he's coming again. And the church was strengthened. And all of this, the hand of God. All of this, the hand of God. The hand of God in the salvation of Lydia. The hand of God in the deliverance of a slave girl. The hand of God in the salvation of inmates and prison keepers. The hand of God in the development and strength of a church. That's why we pray. That's why we pray for God to speak when we share the gospel. For God to penetrate hearts when we talk about Jesus. That's why we pray that God would protect the church and enable it and empower it. That's why we pray that God's will will be done and he would send us where he wants to. That's why we pray for courage and for boldness. That's why we pray that we would have compliant, obedient hearts to do his will. Because in this, God is glorified. Lives are changed. The kingdom of darkness loses ground, loses citizens, and the kingdom of heaven grows. And that's our aim. Would you pray with me this morning? So as you bow your heads just around the room and pray, let me speak first to anybody here listening that would not yet identify themselves as a believer in Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're that person who's just struggling with, uh, with just the doubts and the questions and if pressed, if you're standing before God in this moment, you're not sure. You're just not sure what God would say about you. You're not sure if he would invite you into his everlasting kingdom or not. Listen to you, you need to understand this. There is one foundational question asked and one correct answer and one alone. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Only Jesus, no other religious system, no other religious figure 
No self-effort can afford you what Jesus does. Believe on Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Saved from the wrath of God that is rightly placed on sinful rebellion against Him. Saved from condemnation and eternal death. Saved from a life of rebellion against His will and purpose for your life, the very purposes for which you were made. Saved. Delivered into His kingdom. Rescued from darkness promised his presence, his strength, his guidance, and eternal life with him, where in his presence, the Bible says, are pleasures forevermore. Saved. Will you believe in Jesus Christ today? Will you humble yourself and say, I can't earn this and I don't deserve this, but dear God, I accept this as your offer to me through Jesus, who loved me, died for me, was raised for me, is coming again one day. Save me. Save me, God, through Jesus Christ. Will you do that today? And Christian, what about you? Have you stopped praying for the people that you care about? Have you stopped praying for the lost around you? Have you given up trying to reach those people that are far from God? Have you become discouraged that you're not on the winning side? Have you allowed yourself to become jaded or cynical because the world that you live in shows so much evidence of evil that you wonder, where is God in all this? Are you going through a difficult time that you can't pinpoint the cause? Listen, God is sovereign over all. He's working out His purposes in us and through us and for us, and His purposes are good. They're not always about us. Perhaps they're for someone else. Perhaps they're for your witness and your testimony. Perhaps they're for the salvation of someone else. Perhaps what you heard today is just to remind you to persevere, keep trusting, keep obeying, keep asking. What would God have you to do? Father, I pray that our response to you today would just be simply obedient. Just obedient. pray that someone today would be obedient to your call to repent of their sin and believe the gospel, believe in Jesus, and be saved. And I pray that you would stir believers in this room to prayer, not just in the moment, but a renewed commitment to prayer, to trust. And Father, in a way that only your spirit can do it, I pray that we would leave here encouraged, strengthened. We weren't there, but this story has been preserved for us, given for our sake. So, Father, I pray that we might also be encouraged in you today. Lord, for your glory, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.